Thanks for listening to this week's sermon from Epicos Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. For more information about Epicos, please visit epicos.org. Hey, uh, I want to begin, before, before we begin, I want to actually say today's a very special day for me and, and a segment of our Epicos uh, family. Today marks the one-year anniversary since the launch of the Epicos Mayfair Road campus. Yeah, yeah. Mayfair Road's going crazy right now. I wanna, I wanna speak directly to Mayfair Road real quick as they're, as they're streaming in. Mayfair, as you're watching this, I know after every single service, you're gonna have a cake reception to celebrate our one year anniversary. And so please save me a corner piece because after the second service, I'm gonna drive over there and I want all the icing, all right? So, hey, one thing I love slash hate about flying is that is, is all the people watching. I, I can't be the only one that people watches at the airport because there's something about the airport that makes people go absolutely insane, right? Like I was on a, on a flight to Southern California where I, I uh, was, 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 was gonna go to a pastor's conference and the flight was crazy delayed, like five, six hours delayed. And I remember I was, I was sitting there with my $7 peanut butter M&Ms uh, uh, watching this guy berate the gate agent, like cursing, screaming. Parents were taking their kids out of the gate because they didn't want their kid to hear this man yell at this woman. I felt so bad and I was watching it and, and I was actually kind of surprised that he wasn't put on the, uh, the no-fly list. I don't know what you have to do to get on that list. He seemed like he probably met it, but he ended up getting on the flight. And so when I boarded the plane, guess who I got to sit next to? Yeah, that guy. I love the mutual groans we all just had. So, so he's trying to make small talk with me, which already hate that. And uh, he's trying to talk to me. And, and, and I know he's going to ask me why I'm going to California and why I, uh, what I do for a living. So eventually he asks, and I tell him I'm a pastor. And then he tells me, he smiles, and he tells me, well, that's nice. I'm a Sunday school teacher at my church. My heart sank when he said that because this man in front of like 200 people at this gate just cursed and yelled all kinds of obscenities to that poor lady because his bag was too big to carry on. And I know in a couple days, he's going to tell a bunch of people to love others the same way Jesus has loved us, right? It, 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 It like horrified me. So here's what I think the issue is, right? I think that we sometimes look at our lives like a pie chart, right? We, we have work and family and faith and hobbies, all in these different slices. And maybe if you gave your life to Jesus, the, the Jesus slice, the, the faith slice gets, gets bigger, maybe a little bit more inflated, and you try to adjust the size of your slices of your life of priorities accordingly. But I don't think that's how Scripture sees how we should kind of divvy up our life. When you see your life as a pie chart, what you're doing is you're compartmentalizing your life and Jesus did not die for a slice of your life. I believe scripture points more to a hub and spoke model of life where Jesus is at the center of everything and everything in your life comes through the lens of Jesus. Your hobbies, your family, your work, everything is through the lens of what Jesus has done in and through you. And so our entire life is affected and changed because of Jesus. Jesus is not a part of your life. He is your life and everything must flow from that. And that includes the way we interact with others. 
And so today as we study the letter of Titus, we will see how the transformation of our salvation should cause us to live as uniquely Christian citizens in our communities. And so if you have your Bibles, open to the book of Titus. I know we just got done reading and going through the book of Acts, and so you probably maybe thought, okay, we're going to do Romans next. Gotcha. No, we are actually going to be bouncing around through the New Testament. If you have our study guide, that's the order we're going to be going through the books. And so we're going to be in the book of Titus today. And so let's talk about this book called Titus, this letter called Titus. There are three letters in the New Testament that are called the pastoral epistles. The pastoral epistles. That's First and Second Timothy and Titus. Now, the Bible doesn't call them the pastoral epistles. We call them pastoral epistles. Most of Paul's letters are written to churches, but these three letters are written to individuals, and the content of that letter mostly revolves around um, church leadership and the, the responsibility and the work for pastors. But when I say that, don't think, oh, I'm going to check out today because this is for Frank to read and not for you. No, 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 no. Just because it's called a pastoral epistle and there's a lot of detail for church leaders, this book, these books are rich with content for you and for me to read. And I think today when we see what we have for us, this is specifically for us and not just for the church leaders. So, Let's talk about who this Titus guy is. Who is Titus? So the letter was written somewhere in the mid-60s AD, 63 to 65, 66, uh, and it was written between the first and second imprisonment of, of Paul. And Titus was a trusted friend and co-worker of Paul. Titus would travel with Paul on all of his missionary journeys, and there'll be times where Paul would say, hey, hey, this church needs a little more attention. I'm going to leave you here, and I'm going to keep going. And so we see that. Like in, in the book of the letters to the Second Corinthians, we see Titus pop up a couple of times as he is serving the church in Corinth. But then after he serves for a little bit, he gets back on his journey with Titus, with, with Paul. And so several years later, Titus and Paul end up on the island of Crete. So this island is, is south of Greece, and it still exists today. You can go to the island of Crete right now. But back then, Crete was a wild place. They were known for their violence, their corrupt sexual ethics, and they were overall ruthless people. I kind of like how Paul describes Crete and Cretan people in his letter. In, in Titus verse, chapter 1, verse 12, he says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Now, I love what Paul says after that. He says in verse 13, this testimony is true. Paul's basically saying, yo, that guy ain't lying. There's, them island boys are wild down there, okay? They're crazy, okay? Uh, uh, but after visiting Crete and seeing God change people's lives, Paul tells Titus to stay in Crete to continue to, to, to strengthen the church and to appoint elders, church leaders, all over the island. Later on, Paul ends up in Macedonia, and he ends up writing a letter to Titus while he's in Crete, and that is the letter that we have today that we're reading. And so, if I can give you a, a big picture idea of the letter of Titus, I would say the main thing Paul wants Titus to do is to restore order and health to the church in Crete through gospel proclamation and gospel application. What Paul wants Titus to do is to strengthen the church, to restore order and health through gospel proclamation and gospel application. 
And what's cool is Titus is like uniquely qualified for what's happening here in Crete because Titus was Greek. He wasn't Jewish. He was Greek. He was what's considered a Gentile, which means he's not Jewish. And being a Gentile Christian, Titus was like uniquely kind of formed for this role to combat certain false teachers. So in Crete and in other churches around that time, there was this group of false teachers that infiltrated the church and they were called Judaizers. Sometimes they'll be also known as the circumcision party, which sounds like a very lame party. Do not want an invitation to the circumcision party. Um, these false teachers believe that in order to be a Christian, you had to first follow the Old Testament law. So if you weren't Jewish, in order to get saved, you had to do all the Mosaic law stuff and believe in Jesus. And Titus's job is to confront these false teachers, establish qualified church leaders, qualified elders in these churches, and help the church go deeper in their understanding of the gospel. Now that last part is very important. Because he wants the church to go deeper in their understanding of the gospel because when a church has deep gospel roots in understanding what Christ has done for them, it will produce beautiful gospel fruit in their lives. Deep gospel roots produces beautiful gospel fruit. I think this is beautifully summarized and detailed in Titus chapter 3. And that's where we're going to spend our time in the, in the letter of Titus. So Titus chapter 3 verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So there's a list of six different things that, um, that Paul wants Titus to remind the church of Crete. And I want to kind of briefly summarize them for us because these are six beautiful things that we should remind ourselves as well. The first one is this, to submit to authority and be obedient. Remember, Crete is not a godly place. And Paul still says, submit to the authority of the government. They're to submit to the governing authority. Our, our flesh always wants to reject authority in our lives. Whether it's our parents when we're teenagers or the speed limit on the highway, we have this innate desire to defy authority in our lives. That's because we have this innate desire of rebellion against the ultimate authority in our lives, which is the Lord. Paul says unequivocally in Romans 13 that every person in authority, whether it's the, the president in the White House or the police patrolling our streets, those people have been given authority because God has appointed them there. And so to not submit to their authority is in essence not submitting to the authority that God has established in our lives. We are to submit to authority and be obedient. Two, be ready to do good. Be ready to do good. One question that's um, always has haunted me since I became a pastor was the question of, if, if, if our church ceased to exist tomorrow, would the community around us even notice? And that's a heavy, heavy question that, that I think about probably like once a month as a pastor. And, and as we as a church, are, are we as a church known for the good that we're doing in the community or are we as a church just taking up parking spaces every Sunday? Like, what are we doing in our community? I praise God that at Epicos and at all the individual campuses, we have amazing community partnerships that we get to partner with that's doing some amazing good in all of our communities. 
Today we're doing Step Into Serving, and, and in the Step Into Serving, there's a section about community partnerships, and you can see all the community partnerships at your campus uh, that you can partner with that's doing amazing work in West Dallas, in Sherman Park, over on the east side, as well as Mayfair Road. But let me ask this question personally to you. What is the good that you're contributing to the spaces that you are living in? Like in your neighborhood, at work, or at school, if you were for whatever reason went missing tomorrow and never showed up again, would the people um, miss you because of all the good that you've brought to the spaces that you are present in? What is the good that you are contributing to the spaces you are in? Number three, speak evil of no one. So do you expel more energy tearing down or building up? It's not hyperbole to say that this has been the biggest black eye of the church at large. We speak with no grace and no mercy about our politicians, about our celebrities, or anyone that we just slightly disagree with. Notice Paul didn't say, speak good about everyone. That would be nice. Paul is simply saying, don't speak evil. Essentially, he's saying, just don't be a jerk with your words. Uh, It doesn't mean you agree it means that you're not using your words to tear down. This in particular is something that I've personally been convicted with. Those who know me personally know that I tend to be very sarcastic and silly with my words, and that sometimes gets me in trouble. And, and I often, what that ultimately means is that I find myself texting my friends after we hang out, apologizing if I said something rude or inappropriate. Um, but one verse that I try to filter every single one of my words or my Instagram posts or my tweets is Ephesians 4.29. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths or your hands, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. If what I want to say or type doesn't match up with that verse, it doesn't need to be said whether in public or in private. And if and when I do say something that doesn't match up with that verse, I have a squad of friends who are willing to call me out. And frankly, I am very grateful for my friends when they do check me on that. Number four, avoid quarrels. Similar to to not speaking evil, Paul encourages them to, to avoid quarrels. Being irritable and argumentative is not a fruit of the Spirit right? We, we should avoid arguments and fights and not seek to instigate them either. Number five, be gentle. To be gentle is to be forbearing, patient, and kind. Are the people closest to you in your life, would they describe you as gentle? Would your spouse describe you as gentle? Would your siblings describe you as gentle? Would your uh, uh, roommate or your friends describe you as a gentle person? And number six, show perfect courtesy toward all people. That's a really interesting phrase, perfect courtesy, because I believe we can't do anything perfect, right? So what does perfect courtesy mean? The, the original language sees the phrase perfect courtesy more as all courtesy or every kind of courtesy. So which means you shouldn't be stingy with your courtesy or kind of be subjective with how much courtesy that you show other people. But what's important here is that he says towards all people. We are to show perfect courtesy towards all Christians. We're supposed to show perfect courtesy towards all non-Christians. We need to show perfect courtesy to your family, to your friends. 
We're to show courtesy to the governing authorities. We're to show perfect courtesy to the people that you love in the world. And we show courtesy to those who really annoy us. Paul has indiscriminate selflessness in his mind when he says that we are to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Now, when you see this list, you may see it as a list of rules or a, bit, a, a list of imperatives, basically a checklist or like, okay, Frank, I got it. I see the six things. If I do this, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just win at being a Christian. And if you hear that, let me tell you, you're missing the point, right? Paul, this is not what Paul has in mind here. What Paul is trying to show you is what does it look like when people who actually believe the gospel live out what they believe? What is the result? What is the fruit that, that shows that you actually believe the gospel. Paul, in Paul's mind, the fruit is the evidence of what you just saw in verses one and two. You will see this when you actually believe what Jesus has done in your life. Paul wants to show the fruit of what, what, what should be seen on the island of Crete. A type of fruit that shows that this type of unique community doesn't live in immorality or violence like the Cretans. Paul wants to show that this type of community does not live in religious legalism or arrogance like the false teachers. Paul is telling Titus to tell the church that when followers of Jesus live like they actually believe the gospel, what it will produce is a type of Christian community that is strange to the world. Paul is saying that Christians ought to be the best citizens in their community. And good news, we crush that, right? Christians are always the best citizens around, right? I mean, we want to believe that. But in case you don't know, a lot of people don't believe that. A famous author and atheist, Christopher Hitchens, said, faith causes people to be more mean, more selfish, and perhaps above all, more stupid. You may reject what Hitchens is saying because you think he's just an angry atheist who hates God and hates Christians. But my lived experience as a pastor seems to tell me as I've walked with Christians over 15 years that we do have a propensity to, to, to drift away from remembering how to show compassion and graciousness and kindness towards people. So Paul is telling Titus to remind the people of these truths, to remind them of how we are to live in light of the gospel. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, how do we do that? Well, then he goes on in verse three. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Paul gives us another list. But this list is to remind us of what our lives were like before Jesus. The first three words tell us uh, of what our relationship with God was and what our relationship with wisdom was like, right? Foolishness, we did not understand how we ought to live. Disobedient, we rejected God's authority in our lives and how to live. And we were led astray. We were deceived by false teachers who was pulling us further and further away of how we ought to live. And then it goes on to say that we were slaves to various passions and pleasures. Uh, we hate that word. We hate that word slaves. And rightfully so. It conjures up images of our past and, and it's something that we don't like. But, but even more so to imply that you are enslaved to something is deeply offensive, right? I'm an American. I was born free and I'm gonna die free, right? 
we like to believe that we are free from any shackles that want to control us. But show me your bank account. Show me your browser history. Show me your explore page on Instagram. Show me your habits. Show me where you spend most of your time. Show me where your mind goes to when it wanders. And there I can show you who your true master is. Satan is called the great deceiver because he is really good at convincing us that we are free when we're actually enslaved to our sins. He goes on to say, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So much of our relationships were marked by getting back or getting even, stepping on others to get what we want. And, and we forget that hatred always begets more hatred. And so we live in this constant cycle of being petty and snarky and sarcastic and trying to get what we want. And we never get out of it. And we're blind to the fact that it's even a problem. And as you read verse three, and Paul is saying, we were all like this. Some of you might say, Maybe, right? Some of you might see this and say, okay, 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 Frank. Maybe Paul is speaking a bit hyperbolic because, I mean, I'm not perfect, but I'm mostly good, right? I was mostly good before Jesus. And I call that the banana worldview. Let me explain. Have you ever bought a bunch of bananas and, and you eat them and then uh, you get to that last banana that's been there for a couple days and has a bunch of spots on it and you're like, let's see what happens. And so you peel it and you take the banana out of the peel, and you're like, oh, it's mostly good. Like it has a little weird color spot at the end that you just throw away, but it's mostly a good banana, right? And that's how we see our lives. Well, I'm mostly good. Like I have a couple blemishes here and there, but like, don't throw me away. Like I'm not that bad. I'm a mostly good person. Here's the problem. When we don't see ourselves fully in verse three, we will never fully experience the joy that God has for us found in verse four. Spurgeon puts it like this. Too many think too lightly of sin and therefore think too lightly of the savior. The Bible doesn't say we were mostly good. If that were true, then Jesus wouldn't have to mostly die for us. The Bible says that we were enemies of God because of our sin. The sin that we have doesn't just make us unable to love and follow God, it turned us against God. We were rebellious soldiers in Satan's army against God's kingdom and we were enslaved to our sins. However, the biggest plot twist in all of human history is that how God responds to our depravity is his goodness and loving kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. Let's read verse four. He says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, he saved us. How did he save us? Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his, his own mercy. It is not because you got up from your bootstraps, you worked really hard, and you just tried to be better. It's not because you got sober or you kicked that porn addiction. It's not because you prayed a couple prayers or that your parents always took you to church or you got dunked in the baptism. It has nothing to do with that. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. When it comes to your salvation, the only thing you bring to the table is your sin. God does everything else. And that's really important for you to understand. Paul is emphasizing God's 100% action in your salvation because God saves you and gives you all his goodness. Not because 
you're good, not because you deserve it, not because you're worthy, but because of his own mercy. It is because of his own character and virtue that he wants you. In spite of us giving him all the reasons to not want us, he still pursues us. He still desires us. He still wants us. I say this all the time. I feel like I say this almost every single sermon. And the reason why I repeat it is because I believe if you understand this, it will just cause your heart to overflow in worship. Understand this, that God doesn't need you, but he wants you. And that is so much better. You don't deserve his grace and love in your life. And the fact that he gives it to you shows you the enormity of his grace and love. To people who were rebellious towards him, he is still gracious and loving to them. He goes on to say, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. When, when he saved us, he washed us in the sense that he cleansed us from the stain of sin. But specifically, washing of regeneration specifically points to the new life that's found in Jesus. Remember when we did the Gospel of John and Jesus said in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus that you have to be born again? That's what he's talking about here. What, 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 what baptism symbolizes is this very thing. When, when you go down into the water, what that represents is that your old self, your, your Titus 3 verse 3 self is buried with Jesus. And when you come out of the water, you are a new creation. You're not who you once were. That old self is buried and dead and you are a new person. But remember, that is what baptism symbolizes. That horse trough, that Milwaukee County water, that doesn't save you, all right? If anything, you get out there, you come back out of the water, you might be a little bit dirtier than you came in this morning, right? But, but that doesn't save you. What that represents, what that symbolizes is what the Holy Spirit did at your salvation, bringing you from death to life, entering you into his marvelous light so that you can be made new. And then he goes on and says that word renewal. And the word renewal is super important. Because Paul mentions that to say that he is constantly reshaping our hearts and, retrain, and retraining our minds to be more like Jesus. At salvation, God made you new. And every single day as you walk in the spirit, he is making you new. He's still changing you. Now, at salvation, it's 100% God. But this renewal part, you have a part to play in this. In the back of our study guides, if you don't have one, you can get one in the lobby for five bucks. In the back of our study guides, there's this whole section on spiritual practices. And when you do those, what you're doing is you're reshaping and you're re, re, retraining your heart and mind to conform to the image of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit does a work in you to renew you and change you, to continue to change you to be like his son. Grab the study guide, go to the back and look up spiritual practices. And I dare you to try some of those things. Verse six, the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Uh, let, let me give you some definitions here because I think it's important because there's a lot of churchy words in this passage. And sometimes when we say a lot of churchy words really fast, they all, we, we kind of mix them up. The word mercy, I would define it as God withholds what we deserve. God withholds what we deserve. We deserve the wrath of God because of our sin, and then he doesn't, he doesn't give us his wrath. He withholds his wrath. 
grace. God giving us the opposite of what we deserve. We deserve his wrath. He not only withholds it, but in turn, he gives us, he lavishes us with his love, his compassion, his goodness, and his kindness towards us. And that word justified is Jesus declaring us righteous before God. Uh, when God sees us, he doesn't see our, our verse three version of ourselves. He doesn't see our sin. He sees Jesus' perfect life on you when you put your faith in Jesus. And so when God sees you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees Jesus' life on you and therefore you are welcomed into his family. And, and again, I just said family and he goes on to say that we become heirs, which means that every good thing that God has to offer is yours because of Jesus. Every good thing that only Jesus is worthy of, it belongs to us now. We, we are co-heirs with Jesus, and when he saved us, we get the privilege of calling God our Father. So, why does Paul say this? Why does Paul remind us of how bad we were in verse 3 and, and how great our salvation was in verses 4 through 7? He answers that question in verse 8. He says, the, say, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Uh, many believe that verses four through seven was an ancient creed that the early church would, uh, would recite and memorize. And some even believe that, that, that they would repeat this right before they would get baptized to remember how great their salvation was. He insists that we remember our sinful state in our past and all that God did for us in our salvation so that we live out those good works that he mentions in verses one and two. Good works don't save you. And we just read that, right? Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Good works don't save you, but your good works authenticate your faith to the watching world, right? How can we expect the world to believe that God is generous when his followers are stingy? How can we expect the world to believe that God provides supernatural joy when all we do is complain? How can we expect the world to believe that God is gracious when you and I are so uncharitable and callous with our words to people who we disagree with? Uh, the German monk Martin Luther said that God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. So if you're a Christian, Titus 3 is here to remind you that our salvation is so great. Look at what you've been saved from. You've been saved from foolishness, slavery, hatred. And what does God give you? Goodness, loving kindness, mercy, and grace. And how did you earn it? You didn't. There's nothing you did to earn God's goodness, his loving kindness, his mercy, and his grace. It's, if, if God has been so gracious and kind towards us, then the only logical response is that we're gracious and kind towards others. So after the service, some of you might go to Culver's. And when you get to Culver's, there might be a 15-year-old kid there behind the counter who's gonna mess up your order. Can I tell you why you're gonna be patient and gracious with him? The reason why is we show patience and grace because when we remember our salvation, we remember that God was patient and gracious to us in all of our mistakes, including the mistakes we made intentionally. And so because of that, we're going to be patient and gracious with that 15-year-old kid who pushed the wrong button on the screen. You know, um, tomorrow when you go to work and it's lunchtime, your coworkers will huddle together and they may begin to gossip and speak ill of your boss. 
Do you know why you're not gonna participate in that? Even though your boss is a sinner and has probably led you imperfectly and maybe even made really poor choices and decisions in leading you, when you were far from God, when you were not even thinking about God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit conferred with one another that they were going to pursue you and they were gonna choose you and to bring you into his family and they were only gonna do goodness in your life and never evil. So we don't speak evil of anyone, not our bosses, not our coworkers, not our spouses, not our friends. Uh, uh, let the gossip be to the gossipers, but that's not you. You're not that. You're not verse three anymore. And do you know why you're not gonna pick up your phone later and post a condescending or snarky Facebook or Twitter post about someone you disagree with, maybe politically or ideologically? Because before you were a Christian, you were following the wrong king and you were campaigning for his kingdom. And your ideology was against the kingdom of God. But he has never been condescending or rude or wished evil to you. Despite all that, he was constantly wooing you and drawing you to himself by his loving kindness. And so because of that, we don't start fights on social media or try to say provoking things to stir people to anger, but we are gentle and charitable and show perfect courtesy towards all people. When our coworkers and our neighbors and people online see that we don't fall into the same trap as the right versus the left or the outrage culture or any of that nonsense, that is when they will see a uniquely type of Christian citizen that relates to others differently. And when they see that, they will begin to doubt their disbelief in God. The guy who was on my flight that cursed out the gay agent did that because he forgot how great his salvation was. He reverted back to his verse, the, the verse three version of himself. And his behavior in that terminal was a letter to everybody, all 200 people, that was a letter to them showing them how he believed Christians should behave and act. Listen, I believe Christopher Hitchens is wrong. Faith does not cause people to be mean, selfish, or stupid. But when we forget how great our salvation is and how gracious that God has been towards us, then maybe Hitchens is right. Maybe we are all mean and stupid and selfish. The message from the letter of Titus is simple. Titus 3.8, those of you who believe in God, be careful to devote yourself to good works. Not because good works save you, but because God's mercy and grace saves you. But deep gospel roots produce beautiful gospel fruit and the beautiful gospel fruit in our good works will overflow and show the world who Jesus is and why he's worthy to be followed. The people around you may not have a chance to hear your gospel message, but they're watching your gospel living. I pray that your life has so much gospel fruit that the people around you just wanna ask you, why are you different? Why are you not like anyone else? And I pray that when they get to that place, they will be confronted with the beauty of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and how he can change them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you because in spite of our sinfulness, in spite of our rebellion, in spite of how we were in verse three, you showed us verse four. You were gracious to us. You were kind to us. You were compassionate gentle with us, loving towards us. And I ask you, Lord, that, that, that today, if we have forgotten about the beauty of our salvation, that we repent right now and we confess that to you. And I pray, Lord, for all the, the different relationships we have, whether it's the people we, we love the most, like our family, 
or the people we just interacted passively, like the, like the kid at Culver's, Lord. I just pray, Lord, that in all of our actions, in all of our behavior, because of the great work that you've done inside of us, because of Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, I pray that that overflows in amazing graciousness towards others. That when people see us, they see a different kind of citizen, a person affected and changed by a king in a kingdom who doesn't belong to this world. I pray, Lord, that today, tomorrow, and the rest of our lives, we represent our citizenship in heaven well because of the transformation that you've done in our lives. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.